Uh, we're going to proceed on with our series, The Unshakables. This is our summer series. Today is the last message in our series. So if it happens to be your first week here, it's just the right time for you. I'm excited about God's Word today. Here's basically a summary of our, our whole series. Our eternal and living God is real, and having hope in Him is not blind faith. It's not mind over matter, is what I'm saying. Our faith and our hope in Him is, is about that which is eternal and that which matters eternally, swallowing up that which matters on earth, or that might burden your soul on earth. I'm going to ask you to stand to your feet with me. We're going to read, and we're going to basically be in 2 Corinthians the whole time. We'll start with chapter 5, verse 1. Paul's letter to a church who was flawed, like us. So I'm sure you'll relate, as I do. 2 Corinthians 5, verse 1. For we know that if the tent that is our earthly home is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For in this tent we groan, longing to put on our heavenly dwelling, if indeed by putting it on we may not be found naked. For while we are still in this tent, we groan, being burdened, not that we should be unclothed, but that we should be further clothed, so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. He who has prepared us for this very thing is God, who has given us the Spirit as a guarantee. Everyone say guarantee. Guarantee. Verse 6, so... We are always of good courage. Everyone say always. Always. We know that while we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord, for we walk by faith and not by sight. Yes, we are of good courage, and we'd rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. So whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please Him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Y'all can be seated as we pray. Jesus, teach us to number our days that we may gain a heart of wisdom. Wisdom for how we ought to live in 2017 to glorify you. Help us to know the hope of our calling and to not waste it. Amen. I'll never forget that old blue recliner that for about seven months straight in 2007, I sat in and it was kind of my, my dwelling place for seven months. Months. It was the tent of my dwelling. That's where I memorized this passage in the preceding chapter that we just read. I thought that my earthly home, my tent, uh, was fading away. I didn't know if I was going to make it. Uh, my rheumatologist 
trying to figure out why my lupus flare was so intense and destructive. He wasn't really sure if I was going to make it. I didn't know if I, would, uh, if I would walk and run again at that point. I didn't know in 2007 if, uh, if I would ever live to, to know the joy of being a father. Um, I was newly married. I had a beautiful wife, my, my uh, high school sweetheart. Uh, she didn't know and didn't plan on having an abrupt introduction to this sort of life as serving me crippled. I, in that time, I lost 30 pounds uh, from muscle atrophy, but I gained so much more. Because see, in that blue recliner, I had nothing else but eternal hope in Jesus and a little Bible I could barely even have my fingers were in so much pain at the time. I could barely even open it up, but I could. And when I got stuck on this page, chapter 4 and 5 of 2 Corinthians, I memorized it. It sings of eternity. There was a lot that I didn't know then, but at the time, I knew very much that Jesus is real, that he's near, that he's eternal, and the joy that I had was immense. Joy is eternal. Happiness depends on happenings in your life. It comes and goes, but joy can be unshakable. I had hope in the healer even when I didn't know if or when the healing was going to happen for me, whether at that point in that year in this life. Hope is all I had in Jesus in that old blue recliner. And then what happened the next spring is I received healing in my body. And uh, one miracle led to another. We were told we would never be able to have babies based on, uh, or that was a, a major risk for us, that we probably wouldn't be able to have babies. And we got healing and we got pregnant. Uh, and then we were told we were infertile, and the doctor year, a year later didn't understand why we had the first baby, and another miracle, and another baby, and another few more babies. <laughs> and this weekend, we moved into our dream home. Redemption. Thank you, God. For a few years, these last few years, after baby number four, we were kind of living in a one-bedroom apartment, but now we have, like, rooms for our kids that are different than the rooms for us, which is great. <laughs> but I need to tell you something. I need to tell you a secret that if you can rejoice in what I just said in the last 45 seconds, but you don't get this, I'm concerned at your state of unshakableness. What, the secret that I'm about to tell you is the battle for your life. And it determines and reveals your unshakable destiny. It's my greatest concern for me and my greatest concern for you. Here's the secret. What I had in that old blue recliner is more substantive and powerful than the other things that have been added since And these things will come and go, 
And the coming and the going will test whether or not the substance of your hope and your joy are in the right place. And perhaps from time to time, the most merciful thing God can do to you is to rip away the tent of your dwelling to reveal what lacks in your eternal hope. My concern for you is that you find your unshakable hope in the person of Jesus. So where are you today? Are you more along the lines of the disposition of hopeless? That's an okay place to be with Jesus here, feeling hopeless, feeling brokenhearted. He's near to the brokenhearted. Are you feeling hopeless? Maybe it's Charlottesville. Maybe it's your, you know, something at work or in your family. Or, or maybe not. It's okay if you're not hopeless either. What if, what if you're here and things seem to be going pretty well for you, kind of like I described with my circumstances? That's okay too. Are things going well for you? Things in your job are going well? Like things in your life, like they're going as planned? I'm going to say this, that regardless of where you are on that spectrum, the fight for your life is the fight to understand that your unshakable destiny is found in your hope in the Savior being the most substantive and profound place that you derive your identity, your hope, and your faith. And the mercy of God is to do all that he will sovereignly to reveal what really is the answer to that question in your life. That's how good he is. He's the treasure of eternity. Jesus talked about the pearl of greatest price in a story. But even how he told the story and how he lived his life clearly revealed that he is that pearl. He's just too good for anyone to make up. And hope in who he is, what he's done, and therefore what he will do is the fight for your life, regardless of what your spouse or your mortgage company or your president does or says. Those things will be shaken. But Jesus will never be shaken. Here's my big idea today. Only hope in eternity engenders fruitfulness on earth. Uh, can you repeat that with me? Just say, only hope in eternity engenders, say that word, fruitfulness on earth. Not bad. My conducting was lacking there, but you did a pretty good job. Now, I want to go back through this passage and just drive this home. Verse 1 of chapter 5. For we know that if the tent that is our earthly home is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. This is more than confidence that Paul is speaking with. He has what's called assurance. Assurance is a theological, religious term that's way stronger than human confidence. You need to know this. In this church, we believe that you can have assurance. 
heavenly assurance. Now, assurance of what? We know that if this tent that is our earthly home is destroyed, we have a building from God. We have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. I have assurance that not if, but when I die, when my life is destroyed, when my nation is destroyed, if that happens before my life, either way, both of them are going, and I have something better that will never be destroyed. It'll never be shaken. I have an unshakable confidence in an unshakable God whose mercy has ripped through nation after nation. Nations rise, nations fall, and Jesus is always there. Redeeming cultures, not conquering them. Redeeming them, taking them back, what they ought to be. He's the only explanation for why you can look around this room and see people that don't look like you, but what you have in common with them is most profound. The mercy we've received and therefore the destiny we have is sure. He's talking about the future here, but you need to see the correlation between the assurance of what Jesus has done in the past, 100% leading to the assurance of where I will be with him in the future. I can know these things. It's not arrogance. It's assurance. I am 100% certain that I am wicked and deceitful at heart and my sins deserve judgment. But I have assurance because of what Jesus has most assuredly done on my behalf. So the question of assurance is the question not of uh, do you have enough faith or any of that. The question of, of assurance is, is Jesus and what he has done enough to guarantee, everyone say guarantee, guarantee. to guarantee that you can be with him now, have true and abiding eternal life, even in this moment we call faith, while we're on earth in this earthly tent? And therefore, does it derive uh, to an eternal hope in the future? That's assurance. Now, we can have assurance that uh, you know, the earthly tent seems to be being destroyed here on earth, but that's not good enough. I mean, we all have CNN and access to that, right? It's not good enough just to know that things are falling apart on earth. But look, they always have. And they always will. They'll be shaken. But we can have assurance that when they're shaken, there's an unshakable destiny that we nonetheless enjoy. Whether we have a nice new home, or an old blue recliner. We can have this joy that's unshakable in Jesus. Let's go on a little bit. Verse 2. For in this tent we groan, longing to put on our heavenly dwelling, if indeed by putting it on we may not be found naked. I think he's referring to uh, whether or not we, we have true faith, saving faith, uh, and again, pointing to, we can, we can have assurance. Verse 4, For while we are still in his tent, we groan, being burdened, not that we would be unclothed, but that we would be further clothed, so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. He who has prepared us for this very thing 
is God who has given us the Spirit as a guarantee. Now, hold on. A guarantee of what? Wait, God has, God has done all these things and guaranteed all these things. What? Groaning. Do you see the strange contra- contrast in these verses we just read? God has done all these things for us. God has provided for us this ability to groan. To have some, uh, some uh, dissonance in our existence. Like something's just a little bit, not quite 100%, right? Dissonance. We groan. It's whether we're, 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 we want something else, but I don't just want something different. I want something more than what I have. How do you reconcile these things? He who has prepared you for these things is God, who has given us the Spirit as a guarantee. Only by the Spirit of God, it says, can a man cry out, Jesus is Lord. This is a strange contrast, and I have to ask the question, why do we groan, and why is it a good thing that God has prepared us for this groaning? Um, And to answer that question, I want to take you back. Flip a page before, or a chapter before, regardless of kind of how your Bible's printed. I want to take you back to the confidence that Paul had as he's writing these things. He built off of these ideas. I'm going to go back to chapter 4, verse 6. This is a beautiful verse, one of my favorite verses in the Bible. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness has shown in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. This is a picture of the gospel. This is the summary of my life. Uh, if you read a few verses before, it talks about veils of deception. You know, they, people can't see the light of the knowledge of the glory of God. That was how I grew up. I was religious. I went to church. But I was full of perversion. I, I used people, but I didn't know any better. I excused it by comparing myself to worse people. I prided myself without saying it as being better than the worst. But I didn't know the light of the knowledge of the glory of God. And I didn't find it. God said, let there be light. And the earth was. And that's essentially the same story of my faith. God said, let there be light. And he shone in my heart and made me new. That's basically the story of my life. I had this amazing light treasure. The same light that, that shed that started the universe when he said, let there be light, verse 1 of chapter 1 of Genesis. Let there be light. The same God who spoke light into my darkness and my perversion. Jesus lived a perfect life. The only man in history who's ever lived a perfect life. And he died a sacrificial death on our part and he was put into a very real grave in a very real place in Jerusalem. And on the third day, it was a Sunday morning, light started to creep in to that tomb. And the same God who spoke the universe into existence with words spoke this man, this incorruptible man, back to life. And it's the same God who spoke that same resurrection power into my dead soul. That's the story of my life. But here's, check out this weird contrast. I have this this eternal treasure that's able to overcome the whole world. 
in a frail, weak, broken humanity. Verse 7, but we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. I have the treasure of the light of God. I see the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. My life resembles it. I'm no longer a man overcome by perversion. I'm a man who is fighting sin and no longer conquered by sin. Still fighting, not conquered. I have the light of God, but in a broken vessel. This is, this is meant to be absurd. You didn't put anything of value, any less treasure, in jars of clay. Jars of clay were for refuse, rubbish. So the absurdity that God would do an amazing thing like the gospel, transforming people's lives through Christ, and put it in frail, weak, struggling people like you and me, is crazy. It's like only he could get credit for you being you and being a decent person and even better. We are afflicted, verse 8, in every way. Has anyone here suffered affliction? We're afflicted in every way, but not crushed. Perplexed. Does anyone look out in the world and think, this is perplexing? But we're not driven to despair. We're persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. Always carrying in the body the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may be made manifest in our mortal flesh. For we who live are always being given over to the death for Jesus' sake, so that his life may be made manifest. We have this treasure in jars of clay. We possess eternity. We possess hope in the man of hope in Jesus. We have it in jars of clay. We have an unbreakable hope that we carry in our brokenness. It is, it is a beautiful paradox that Jesus gives us. Do you have this treasure? Do you have this hope? Let's go on and back to chapter 5. Reading on, starting with verse 6. I'll read through verse 9. For we are always of good courage. We know that while we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord. For we walk by faith and not by sight. Yes, we are of good courage. And we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. So whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please him. We make it our aim to please him. There's this tension of being at home in the body. I mean, I have a strong preference to not die right now and leave my small children and my wife without me. But I also have a desire to be close to Jesus. I think there's tension with those two. But what he's saying is, whether we're on mission with God in this brief mist of a moment called human life where we get a chance to, to, to express faith and, and spread the faith in Christ, it's a wonderful adventure, and it's brief. Whether that's the place we're in or we're forever in his presence, either way, we want to please him. That's our aim. I, I want to talk about what pleasing is not, though. 
This does not mean when Paul says we make it our aim to please him, he's not saying we, we strive to attain or merit or earn something that we don't yet have. So don't think that you need to go please God as it's something that you have not yet already attained. We don't work for God. We work from his mercy. There's a big difference. I'm going to explain this to you with a, a, an analogy that Jesus gave. It's called being fruitful. Pleasing God is being fruitful. Now, how, how does fruit happen on any plant? You know, does a plant think, oh man, if, if I think hard enough to get rooted and produce some fruit, I can do it. No, a, a plant just is rooted to the nourishment of the soil and the sun and produces fruit because it's rooted. So how do you produce fruit in life? How do you please God? I think it's one and the same. How do you not waste your life? Will you rest in Jesus? Only hope in eternity engenders fruitfulness on earth. In fact, I think Jesus correlates fruitfulness and pleasing God, and that's kind of the point of life. One and the same. John 15, verse 16, he says, You did not choose me, but I chose you. And appointed you that you should go and bear fruit. And your fruit should abide or remain. And so that whatever you ask in my name, he may give it to you. The fight for your life and for your fruitfulness is to have such a regard and a trust and a hope that when your life is shaken around, you are not shaken apart. Because your hope is so much better than your circumstances. So that when people see you blessed on earth, they can say, oh, I love that for him, but he's got something better. Or when people see you grieving on earth, they can grieve with you and say, oh, she's struggling, but I, I grieve with her. And yet I can still rejoice that there's something better than this. And this moment shows it too. Only hope in eternity engenders a fruitfulness here on earth. Pleasing God isn't the result of your labor, it's the fruit of his labor. Pleasing him is about fruitfulness, it's not about your performance. Let's keep going on in chapter 5. Is this helping anybody? This is helping me, I guess that's good enough. Verse 9, so whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please him, for we must appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that everyone may receive what is due for what he's done in the body, whether good or evil. Uh, What judgment is this talking about? Uh, I researched this to see if the context, this judgment seat of Christ thing that we all must appear before, is this talking about like if Jesus is going to judge us and send us to heaven or hell? Or is this talking about someone who's already a Christian and there's another kind of judgment. Like we, we know in the rest of the New Testament, there's, there's a judgment for rewards. That's a whole other sermon-ish, but it's, it, it's also important here. Here's my conclusion. From my studies, I think this is both. Jesus will, will judge all of us. The same one 
who sits on the throne of God now and is coming back to judge, ultimately, we will all sit, stand before him and he will judge what's done on earth. Okay, so I think it's both the heaven or hell thing because have we died to ourself here on earth and placed our faith in Jesus that I can never make myself better. I can never turn over a new leaf. I can never uh, choose to be a better person and pull myself up by my bootstraps and all that. In fact, all I can do is die and place my confidence that Jesus died for my sin and he judges that by my faith in his grace, that's enough. Or he judges you've placed your confidence in yourself. So in one sense of this, we'll either have uh, to be judged either by our best effort at righteousness or by his mercy. That's a big one. But even on top of that, if the judgment context that this is talking about is only Christians who are all going to heaven, there's something that still remains. There's a few things about judgment that I want to point out about this verse. Number one, either way, actions on earth have eternal consequences. So if the judgment is about heaven or hell, that, could, that very well could be. But if the judgment is about whether or not we've been fruitful, those of us who are going to heaven, whether we've been fruitful, we'll, we'll check this out. Fruit in our life has to do with heaven and hell for someone else too. So the judgment is all about, have you received the hope of Christ in your heart? And after that, have we lived with such a regard for that that it swallows up all our other ambition and worries and fears? And have we been fruitful? And as we peer before the judge, can we have the joy of him? All our life actions have eternal consequences. Is, can I work that out easily? Like exactly how that's going to work? No. I just know that God is a judge and Jesus will judge. Let me tell you secondly about judgment though. That is good news. And, and I understand that that sounds strange, right? God's going to judge the earth and that's good news. I actually just read this in my devotionals this morning, Psalm 98 uh, rejoice, O heavens, for God the judge is coming to judge. He will judge the nations uh, in righteousness and the peoples with equity. And that's good news. I understand that there's some dissonance here too. It's good news that God's judging the earth. And yes, the word judge is a harsh word. So why is that good news? Let me read you a quote from one of my heroes. Uh, he's a pastor in, in Great Britain. His name's Nicky Gumbel. He says, God's judgment is an aspect of his love. He loves the marginalized, and therefore he acts on their behalf to judge their oppressors. Judgment is a good thing. There is a correlation between our hope in eternity, in our trust now that God will judge someday. In fact, I was listening uh, to Tim Keller, a pastor in New York a few years ago, and he was drawing up different sociological correlations between cultures that believe ultimately that God will judge and cult cultures that have the ability to live at peace here on earth. And the point is simple. If I have an overwhelming trust that God's going to judge people, 
I don't have to judge them. So yes, I can be clear about judging ideologies, but I don't have to judge people because I trust that God will. And because God is a judge and he's righteous, I can have peace, and that's good news. Now, I think the ultimate reason that we've been talking about this whole time and we'll never stop talking about, the ultimate reason why God being a judge is good news is the scandal of history, the beauty of history, that God the Father did judge God the Son on our behalf. That's why it says, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he's done in the body, whether good or evil. Verse 11, therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. Well, what do we persuade them about? I think we persuade them about judgment. The verse right before. We persuade them that God has judged our sin in the person of Jesus and he took our sin. He lived the life we should have lived, died the death we should have died. He rose again from the dead. He walked around. The dead guy who was undead walked around for 40 verifiable days with 500 eyewitnesses. And then he ascended it in heaven. As the creeds continue, he is seated at the right hand of God, and he will come again in glory to judge the living and the dead. And this is good news. This is the anchor of our hope that engenders fruitfulness here on earth, without which it's fruitlessness. He's a judge. In fact, the verses after, verse 17 onward, chapter 5, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. Thank you, God. And entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God for our sake. He made him to be sin who knew no sin. That we might become the righteousness of God. God, the Father, judged our sin in the person of Jesus. He was crushed for our iniquity and our sin. And he became the substitute of our sin so that we could receive by substitution his righteousness. And that anchor of hope is what causes us to be new and crazy and full of hope and not shaken even when things shake us and be fruitful and not waste our lives to be ambassadors you know that word ambassador is real strange uh, you actually think about an ambassador an ambassador cannot be a citizen to the nation he or she serves think about that for a second the only use of an ambassador is if they are not a citizen of the nation they're serving. So, yeah, I'm an American. I celebrate 4th of July, and 
And I love the red, white, and blue, but you know what? This is not my home. And the ultimate ability to serve this nation is directly proportional to my confidence about that. That it is not my home. This, this earthly tent will fade away, but I got something better. And my confidence in that engenders a fruitfulness here in good old U.S. of A. in 2017. And the same goes for you. So my question to you first, have you been reconciled to God? Have you been made right with God? Have, can you say like Paul that God made him who knew no sin to become sin for me And now, what's my name? Who am I? I am the righteousness of God in Christ. Can you say that with confidence? Do you have assurance of that? If not, cry out to God. I'm not going to do a call. I'm not going to say, you know, raise your hand. I'm just going to say, cry out to God. Say, God, make me new. I repent. Forgive my sin. And he'll make you new just like that because he sees you. He knows you. He hears you. He's here. What about if you've already received that? Are you fruitful demonstrating that as an ambassador of reconciliation? Do you have a higher regard for your hope in Christ than you do for the hopelessness on earth? Or even the, the, the hopefulness on earth that's fading? Do you have a regard for that? Let me tell you a story about one ambassador for Christ that about 150 years ago that I rejoice in. His name is Horatio Spafford. He was born in the 1830s in New York, and uh, moved his family to Chicago. He was a very successful, very wealthy lawyer. In 1871, in the great Chicago fire, his, pretty much all his belongings were destroyed. His business was destroyed. That very same year, his oldest son, Horatio's oldest son, died of scarlet fever. Uh, two years later, he was wanting to take a vacation with his family, so uh, they decided, you know, England would be a good place. We've got to get away from here. And with what little money they had left, they, they, he sent his family actually ahead on a boat. He was going to try to tie up some business and then meet them in England afterwards. Uh, I think it was like the day before he was going to meet up with his family, he got a wire back that there was a shipwreck. And his wife and four daughters, the rest of his family, had died. He nonetheless decided to get on the boat. And when Horatio was passing on the boat, the place where they said that this is most likely where the shipwreck occurred, he was overwhelmed by a mysterious hope. The same hope we're talking about here. The same hope that is the battle for your life. And he wrote a poem. The absurdity of this poem is this. He said, it, It is well with my soul. It is well with my soul. Let me tell you, there have been few men or women on earth that have been more fruitful and had a more unwasted life than Horatio Spafford. He's not a man who lost everything. He's a man who gained everything. And he is a man who continues to bear fruit today. I want to stand to our feet. I want to sing that song together. It is well with my soul. As we approach this, think about the things that are going well for you or not going well for you. Can you before God do business with God and sing with your own conviction? It is well with my soul.